Hello and welcome to the SE Tomorrow Today podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Brulty. On today's podcast, we're absolutely honored to have Jennifer Morrison, Manager of Vehicle Safety and Compliance, Moss North America. Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to have this conversation because you have an incredible background in government and now you're in the private sector, so I can't wait to talk about your incredible background and, and how it all comes together. With over 16 years of experience at the National Transportation Safety Board, there is no doubt you saw a lot, you learned a lot, and reflected a lot. What are some of the most meaningful takeaways from that time? I have so many images in my head, good and bad, uh, throughout my experience at the NTSB. Like As far as what I saw and I, I did there, it really did shape not only my career, but just overall how I feel about roadway safety and transportation um, and why I do what I do. Um, when I reflect on these images, it's, you know, of course, a lot of trucks and buses. I did a lot of commercial vehicle accident investigations, cars, freeways, overpasses, rural roads. Every single one of the crashes that I investigated at the NTSB is is unforgettable to me. I know them. I know them by state, uh, city and state, um, such as Huntsville, Alabama or um Fairfield, Connecticut. You know, these are these are these are a, a city and a state locations that we kind of refer to each crash as. But those are people's lives and, and real crashes that happened. And I think that's why it's so unforgettable and really shapes me as first and foremost now a safety advocate in highway safety. Um, because that reality over a hundred people a day. You know, that those big numbers, those 36,000, 37,000 plus numbers, those are a lot more than just numbers to me. I grew up in Connecticut and I lived for many years in Fairfield. So am I, was really? it, I'm, yeah. So is this, was this on 95 or was this on the, the Merritt Parkway? Yeah. So uh, Fairfield, Connecticut, I had, I had to mention that one because that was my very first crash investigation um, when I became an NTSB investigator. I believe I was 25 years old at the time. Um, I, spent just three years out of college uh, with NHTSA. So I was in the Office of Defects Investigation doing you know, recall analysis um, work there. I worked on that Firestone Tire uh, recall initially, which was just wild. Uh, but yes, when I came over to the NTSB, my very first crash was in Fairfield, Connecticut on 95. And it involved um, a Chevy Suburban um, that was occupied by a group of Yale students. Um, many of them lost their lives. I think there were about nine, I think there were nine children, young men, I shouldn't say children. There were nine young men in, in the vehicle and I think six of them passed away. So that one will never escape, you know, my memory that it was a tragic crash. People actually pretty near in age to me at the time. Um, and it's, where I met one of my my favorite current NTSB investigators. There was a, a trooper there, uh, David Pereira, who actually worked that crash with me um, from the Connecticut State Police. And um, years later, I recruited him to come work at NTSB. You have family in Darien and, and, and Stanford, and so you travel at 95. And my grandfather for uh, went from Greenwich, moved to Milford, but he kept his law office in Greenwich, and so he would... He would commute every day from Milford to Greenwich, and he would tell stories of how dangerous that drive was and how he couldn't wait until he could 
retire and then eventually ended up retiring and, and moving to Florida. But he would tell these stories of things that as an individual that would commute every day that you, that, you know, he, it was embedded into his head, very similar to yours. And that's really powerful. When you were on that investigation in Fairfield, uh, investigating crashes, was that when you were part of the go team? It was, it was, it was my very first go team experience. Um, and of course that crash, uh, involved, you know, last minute, notification you have a, a bag packed essentially under your desk <laughs> um, a lot of times we would leave directly from the office we'd get notified during you know just the regular work week sometimes it'd be on a weekend or um, when you're home but a lot of my cases just happened to be when I was at the office and we'd have a bag packed under the desk ready to go typically that means jumping on a commercial flight and in the case of Connecticut I'm based out of Washington DC so that's pretty quick flight um, I don't remember exactly where I flew into that time, but probably LaGuardia or something, New York, and drove up. Um, and it's all, you know, kind of very last minute, rush of the moment. It's this really interesting mix of of adrenaline and exhaustion. Uh, adrenaline at first, of course, and then you're there for a week or two. Um, but it flies by. Um, and Fairfield, Connecticut, of course, is just one example of, I think I, I counted at one point in time um, the major highway. When I say major highway crashes, I investigated. Um, these are people. This is our fatal crashes. Often multiple fatal crashes, multiple fatalities that occurred um, over seventy-five times that happened uh, in my NTSB career over the course of about sixteen years. Wow, this is powerful. But I want to I want to stick on the go team thing here and for for our listeners. So at all times, is it kind of like when the president travels with the football, you have to travel with a go bag. So when you get the, the text message or the phone call, it's drop everything in, in go time? Or is there a more formal process to when you get that phone call or text message to go? There is definitely a formal process to it. Um, there are, you're usually notified by your investigator in charge, which is the team leader um, over the go team or uh, one of the the members of the management team there at the NTSB's Office of Highway Safety. Um, and everyone's, you know, it's a really uh, friendly group of people. We, You travel together, you experience each other, um, you know, on the road and in, in tough environments and in tough situations. So it is a bit of a family, <laughs> um, sometimes dysfunctional and crazy uh, because, you know, it's a lot of uh, type A personalities, retired law enforcement, military engineers. Um, so it's a, so when I say I have these uh, interesting experiences and um, on-scene reflections of these tragic crashes, that's also, for me, mixed with some of the best friendships I've ever forged. So it's really an interesting experience in that because you're you're working with some of the best people in some of the worst times. And I can only imagine that that. It, it shaped you in ways that you probably would have never or imagined when you first joined NTSB. And in 2016, you were quoted as saying, autonomous does not necessarily mean driverless. Did this line of thinking and rationale come out of what you saw on, on the front lines of crashes around the United States? Right. I mean, I, I think it's interesting that autonomous vehicles, of course, right now is a very catchy kind of hot topic that people are discussing but when it when it comes down to it there have been automated features in automobiles uh since the advent of abs so 
analog braking systems automatically without a driver's exact input to do so cycle or, or pulse the brakes to prevent wheel lock. That it was the very kind of first way cars started to introduce a, a level of automatic. And that's really where that word autonomous comes from. Um, building on ABS was electronic stability control. So now you're basically just using your ABS system on specific wheel ends to control the motion and the stability of the vehicle. And that's all done autonomously, right? That's do not done because you're doing that. You don't have, as a human, you don't have the ability to, to do that at that rate um, or really even to know what to do in most cases. So now we have electronic stability control, which is another standardized and required safety feature on all cars and trucks now too. Um, and now we're just, we're building on that. So when we say autonomous, we definitely don't just mean driverless. I mean, that's maybe the far distant future. We talk about those SAE levels. That's, you know, that's level five, level four or five and beyond. Um, so when I say, uh, you know, autonomous does not necessarily mean driverless, I'm referring to the very important driver assistance systems that are being deployed in cars that you can buy today, that you've been able to buy for years, that have the capability to really make that effect and start to reduce crashes, especially ones like rear end crashes or lane change, um, sideswipe type crashes. That there is where we have the ability to actually affect some of those cases that I terribly had to investigate while I was at the NTSB. That's I'm happy you brought that up because according to the NTSB, which you were a distinguished part of, serious injuries to drivers are reduced by twenty sorry seventy nine percent in vehicles that have radar-based active emergency systems. Why are these safety elements not standard across the board when you had the experience of seeing what happens at a crash, when you, you understand the emotional impact it has on yourself, you understand the emotional impact it has on society. Why is this not taken into account where it's just the government says, guess what, we need to save lives. And we're going to make this a standard across the across the industry if you're going to sell a vehicle in the United States. Right. The the automatic emergency braking um, systems are not required. They're not standardized. There's not a, a federal motor vehicle safety standard for them today. Should there be? Probably. <laughs> um, I know that NHTSA um, has thought about this, worked on this. But what happened is that the industry came to a voluntary agreement with with NHTSA and with Congress and, and Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, they all came together and the automakers, um, the majority of automakers, um, of course, I work for Mazda now, Mazda's one of them, made a voluntary commitment to install automatic emergency braking systems in their vehicles by model year 2022. So in fact, they are almost standard today already. And uh, most automakers, many automakers, have deployed 90% or more of their vehicles sold in recent years. So let's say 2019, 2020, 90% of those vehicles or more are being equipped with automatic emergency braking as standard equipment. It's not an option. You don't have to buy the next trim level or trim package or premium line to get that technology. 
Um, so the automakers are actually doing a fantastic job of, of, of adhering to that voluntary commitment and really offering new car buyers that level of safety technology. Um, Mazda's at 96%. We got to report a really positive uh, benefit this last year and, and get that number out there. Um, that will eventually be reported out by the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. And it's uh, for all the automakers to kind of say how we're doing. But it was a different path. It wasn't a standard. It wasn't a requirement. Instead, the industry kind of stepped up and said, listen, we want to do this and we're we're going to go ahead and commit to it. With the 96% number from Mazda, you and the entire team and leadership at Mazda should be extremely proud. It's a, it's a, it's a fantastic number because you're clearly – taking a, a leadership position and if you look at the rest of the industry is i bought a new car a year and a half ago and i had to fight tooth and nail to get every adas feature now oh, we gotta sell you the one a lot i said you don't know who i am you don't understand i want all the adas and i want you to, to order it and i'm gonna pay for it today but i want all the features which brings me to the point of do we have to start having a serious conversation as an industry around dealer training so when Let's just say uh, Mrs. Doe or Mr. Doe goes into a dealership or orders a vehicle with a highly advanced version of ADAS that they properly understand what it can do and what it cannot do in the proper way to utilize the system. And then furthermore, what conditions? So we, we talked about Fairfield, Connecticut. It snows there. I live in Florida now. It doesn't snow, but we get torrential rain. To understand the different markets, do you think that dealer training is something that an industry should come together to embrace? Absolutely. The like every new feature in a car or any product that that consumers are purchasing, there is a learning curve. Um, it didn't the very first time I drove a, a vehicle with ADAS features, I didn't know what exactly they did or how they would work. And because there's no requirement and standard um, as far as a regulation is concerned, they all operate a little differently. So you could go out and drive a Volvo or a Subaru or a Mazda or a Chevy or BMW, whatever it is you're out there driving, and their ADAS features are going to behave a little differently. They all have the same general design in that they're aiming to prevent for the automatic emergency braking. They're using radar. They're using cameras to track objects, vehicles ahead and make sure that you don't hit them. But that can be done through different types of warnings, driver settings, the, some steering wheels vibrate, some seats vibrate, sometimes it makes noises. A lot of those things the driver can set. So ideally, a dealer would sit down in that vehicle with that new driver and give them the, they go through all the options within the menus. Um, most of the times that's now on like a big LCD screen, right? Um, but yes, drivers uh, need to be getting that experience with their dealer, that one-on-one. -on -one. I know I learn best from hands-on. Like I want to actually see how I change my blind spot monitoring to give me a, a audible and a visual alert. I, I want to see how that's done so I can go back and do it myself. So that's the kind of experience new drivers and, and new car buyers are needed to have with their dealers. Um, and I know that all of the car companies are taking that very seriously now when it comes to these safety technologies that are so critical. 
that's awesome. When my my vehicle arrived, I sat there and I read the book, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I got I'm going to enable every feature in this, and I have the automatic lane keep assist, and that thing is is, is, is amazing. How it, it just uh, I have like a little thing that comes on the dash, it turns red with a little picture of the car, and it and the steering wheel gently moves it right back into the, to the lane. It's subtle and brilliant, but yeah, if I'm in a um, in a Toyota, it's a different form of it. And so as we go into the, you know, that's a lower level of ADES. We go into the higher levels, let's say SAE level two plus systems of advanced ADES. There's a big debate that's brewing in history now about in-vehicle monitoring systems to ensure that if you're running a highly advanced version of this ADES system, that you're paying attention. Do you have any thoughts around that? Yes, I I, I do. There There is, a, <laughs> it, it's critical. I mean, one of the interesting things I got to do at NTSB was, um, you know, see some of the results of the Tesla investigations, the early on Tesla investigations. I didn't work on a lot of that directly, but, you know, my team members and my friends, they they all did. And it was a very, it was what spurred on this conversation, like what Tesla was doing with their autopilot, what they were allowing to happen in the cockpit of the vehicle. Um, even referring to it as the cockpit of a vehicle and referring to it as autopilot or some misnomers. There's a lot of marketing out there that that can get really tricky. And I think it's important that we consider what we're selling to a consumer and the words we're using and making sure they understand the capabilities that they're purchasing and the capabilities they're not purchasing, right? So building the driver experience and driver engagement in needs to be done by design. Humans will do what they're allowed to do. So if you are allowed to drive hands-free on a roadway that is not within your operational design domain, you'll probably do it. Um, It needs to be really built into the design of the vehicle, what those operational requirements are that needs to be met with the roadway. With the, with the driver, whether it's a hands-on, tactile, you know, steering wheel sensor, or whether it's a, a camera. But that, what the driver is doing is one of the conditions that needs to be met in order to allow those technologies to function. And that has to be by design. Design's a, a, a really good point. I'm happy you brought up marketing. So if you, t- if you take design on one hand, you take marketing. On the other hand, we talked about in-vehicle cab monitoring and dealer training. What else do you think uh, has to come together to ensure that the safe use of, of ADAS? Is it just, is it peer pressure from your friends and family to say, listen, you know, I have this system and it works this way? Is, do you think there's anything missing or do you think those are the two main ingredients? I think for most drivers, I mean, maybe, maybe you and I are those drivers that know more about this ADAS stuff and we we really want it and, and we know what to ask for. We even know what ADAS stands for. I think the majority of the of drivers and our friends and our family members, they have no idea what AEB or blind spot, you know, maybe they know what blind spot monitoring is, but a lot of the acronyms we're using, they don't know what those are and they don't necessarily need to know. I think the we want to keep the driver at this stage that we're in right now. The driver is the center of the vehicle. The driver is in control. That's the message we need to get out there. And that these systems that are being designed and equipped on new vehicles are there to support the driver. We certainly don't want those drivers to go in and turn them off. So I think that's a critical part. So as far as what else needs to be done is 
that next level of getting, you know, the government in there to really require them because right now they're not required. So they can be disabled um, based on driver preference. I think that in general, drivers will get more used to the technology, just like we did with airbags and ABS and ESC and all these other things. Once it becomes more standardized and more common just within all vehicles. And, and we're not quite there yet with AEB because of the way it was introduced and the way it's been brought in as not a regulation. No, these are all valid points. And you, you talk about safety and you have individuals um, such as yourself that are that are doing the right thing and are not using safety as a marketing word, as a buzzword. And there are other individuals that, that use it as a buzzword. But to me, it's it, as a as a consumer. If we remove ourselves from our backgrounds, it, it's very confusing. Okay, what is the safest? And on a previous podcast, we had a former colleague of yours, Dr. Mark Rosekind, and Dr. Rosekind and I had this long conversation around safety crashes and what the negative impact on somebody's life is. And uh, Dr. Rosekind brought up a really valid point: when a celebrity gets into a crash, and if it's a fatal crash, it's on news headlines and websites around the world. But if an individual gets into a, into a crash, it's not. And I brought up the point to Dr. Rosekind. I said, but they're celebrities to their families. And it's going to have a dramatic negative impact on those families and if they they have children. So how do we get the industry to come together? And it's starting to to realize safety is first and, f- and foremost in what we're trying to do. And it's not a buzzword. It, it's something that is going to have a meaningful, positive impact on every single individual's life around the world. I think about that every time I get into the car with my family. Um, I go back to those reflections from standing on the scene of fatal crashes. Um, When I worked with the NTSB, it was, I will, I'll never have those unforgettable moments where I'm actually standing out on a highway, bits and pieces of vehicles everywhere tire tread marks off into the the shoulder, um, you know, gouges in the ground. Those are those are real events that happen to real people, hundreds of people every day. And I do think about that whenever I get into the car with my family or I, I go on a long distance trip. Um, I had an interesting experience a couple of years back when my son was supposed to go on a field trip and they contracted with a bus company. And I went and looked into that bus company and they did not have a very good safety record. 99% of all moms would never do that. I did that and they did not end up using that bus company. But those are the things that we we don't really think about like safety as the as the groundwork. You know, we we say, hey, we want to go on a field trip. Hey, we want to, you know, go up to Philadelphia or New York or drive out into the desert if you live out in California. There are a lot of things that 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 can destroy that trip and make that a, a lot more difficult. So safety really does have to be the groundwork, whether it's making sure your vehicle is just properly maintained. Are you prepared for the trip? Do you have your cell phone plugged in somewhere so you don't have to be handling it? Are you are you traveling with a transportation company? that also believes that safety is the foundation. There are a lot of people that would never consider these things because we are so busy just living our lives, getting from A to B and getting from A to B and getting from A to B, um, that it's hard uh, to remember that many people have lost loved ones. And there's all these real stories out there 
where they were just trying to get from A to B too. And something terrible happened and it changed their life forever. Um, so it's certainly not just a buzzword for me. I know that's kind of a, a long-winded answer, but um, I think once you once you're kind of tuned into it, then it becomes the the reality that you acknowledge. I don't think that the majority of people know how many fatalities occur on the roadways every year. No, and what you said, I want to emphasize is one is extremely important, but it's powerful. And you know, as a father of a young child. I'm going to go out and to call you a super mom because <laughs> you had a positive impact, not just on your children's life, but on all the other parents in that school. And by being a super mom, you set a great, you set a great example for the school board. And there are several listeners who are friends of mine that sit on school boards that are listening. So for those that sit on school boards, please investigate the companies that drive your, your children to and from school and on field trips because Jennifer brought up a valid point and that in my opinion should be standard at every school and Jennifer I want to stay on this super mom topic for a minute why do schools not look into this so you're a super mom that you understand this but to me as a let's say if I'm a principal or I'm an educator in a school it's common sense look into their safety record because the parents when you drop your child off at school you entrust the safety of your child not just the education to that school why are more schools not taking that super mom approach that you took? Well, um, first I want to say some some of the parents I think were kind of mad at me that I ruined the field trip. So I don't know if they would agree about my super mom, mom status. Um, but still, I, I still felt good about it. And that's what that's. And I felt confident sending my child and my friend's children in a, in a better vehicle, you know, one that had everything. And I, you know, there's a buses in general make me kind of nervous because the safety standards are not uniform, separate topic. But as far as schools really knowing who they're hiring, there's actually really great resources out there from the FMCSA, the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, for those of us who uh, are playing with all of our acronyms today. Um, they have wonderful resources for, for not only schools, but for, you know, sports groups, um, personal trips, like, you know, churches, uh, any kind of group that wants to hire a vehicle, like, how do you look up their DOT number? Like, you want to make sure, first of all, that they're actually authorized and insured to transport the number of people that you're asking them to do. So there's there's a lot in there. And there's, there's regulations that any transportation, especially passenger transportation company, has to adhere to. Um, and there are some great resources out there. All you have to do is Google it. <laughs> um, FMCSA has their, you know, hiring a bus resources for schools and for churches. And I definitely recommend that anyone listening who has that in their plans. I know right now is maybe not the time that people are doing a lot of that, but um, I know that we all have done that in the past. It's a normal part of a lot of uh, school and, and church and other uh, group activities. So it's out there. It just, um, we need to talk about it a little bit more. The, the parents or the churches, the group activities, they just go on the FMCSA we website and they can get all the information that they need? Yes. Awesome. So for our, our listeners that, that are parents or involved in church or groups, I, I highly recommend you, you follow Jennifer's adv advice and and make sure that when you're putting your parishioners or your students in a bus to, to make sure that it is meeting safety standards and that it is a safe transportation. And Jennifer, we're in the middle of a 
global pandemic called COVID-19 now. And What? Who? Yeah. <laughs> it's just this thing that's floating around magically in the air. I was wondering why I've been stuck at my house for the last few months. (laughs) Same here. And vehicle miles traveled or plummeted. But unfortunately, motor vehicle fatality rates are up 11% year over year for July 2020. What the heck is going on? Right, right. And no one was really happy to hear about that, were we? It's, you know, I I think that our entire, like, risk-reward system is out of balance right now. Risk in general is out of balance and we're all really distracted. Like there's a a lot of things going on. So it's a combination of risk out of balance, overload of distraction and open roads, right? And speeding, because that's another big issue that kind of comes from a lot of this. Speed is a huge factor in fatal crashes. Um, So... We'll know more, I think, once we get to get to see what types of crashes um, are the ones that are that are peaking. But, you know, I, I think it has a lot to do with just speed and distraction. And, and it does go back to some of the technologies we talked about before, because there are systems that can be built into our vehicles by design that can help support a driver to prevent and reduce the types of crashes that we're seeing out on the road, even the ones that are increasing in this COVID-19 situation. Um, for example, that automatic emergency braking systems that we were talking about, even uh, having like either Apple CarPlay or Android Auto connected on your vehicle. If you don't have a newer vehicle, some auto manufacturers actually have those that you can, um, they can go back a few years and install. So having that hands-free environment. So even if you're not the one that's not, that's, that's speeding and not paying attention, you're at least being able to see others around you and pay attention to your environment more. It's hard to pay attention to our environment as as closely when we have so many other things on our mind. Um, so I, I think that's kind of what's behind some of it. Um, and, you know, g- people getting into newer vehicles with better technology, hopefully that will be part of this. But I'm, you know, we also worry about that because of the economic downturn as well. Will they be taking less safe transportation options in the future? Um, so... Yeah, it's been a bit of a setback, I think, for all of us personally, uh, socially, um, and in our in our work lives. Um, but I hope I'm hoping we can turn it back around. You bring up a really great point about um, distraction. Individuals are stressed to capacity. Some could say they're they're overstressed. We've seen really disturbing data around the the mental health decline of individuals. When you're investigating a, a crash, a non-fatality crash, do you speak to an individual to try and gauge a sense of their of their mental state to, were they distracted looking at a phone? Are they stressed to capacity? Is there something in their lives that caused them to kind of zone out and, and not pay attention? Does that play any role into this as you in, investigate? Right. So when uh, an interesting part of the investigation team when I was with the NTSB was the human factors investigator. Um, So the way that the NTSB GO team, we were talking about a little bit before it was structured, is that there are um, there's like a lead investigator, of course, and then there's five different disciplines that focus on very specific elements of the crash. One of those disciplines is the human factors investigator. And they do precisely what you just mentioned. They're not just looking at the at the physical 
um, they're looking at the overall picture of that person. Uh, were they in a fight with their boss that that would you know made them angry and you know on the way to work and they were just you know distracted? Um, were they not sleeping the night before? Are they having medical emotional issues, um, mental issues, anything? So that that was a fascinating role. I personally never played that role. Um, I had interviewed a few people. Um, I was always the mechanical engineer on the team. So I was typically under a truck or a bus or pulling apart a brake system or something, um, kind of the grease monkey of the team. Um, and then I came on, I went on to become an investigator in charge, but the, the human factors investigator was always one of the most interesting roles. And I think one of the most difficult because it's almost the intangible that we were asking them to understand. Almost like a psychologist. Is that a fair, a fair assumption? In fact, uh, several of them had, uh, backgrounds in psychology, even PhDs in, in that area, um, as their path to becoming. A human factors investigator. And I want to stay in this NTSB question because we talked about the GO team. We just talked about human factors, but what triggers an NTSB investigation? I've always wondered, is it a call from the state police, the the city police, or depending on where, where that is? Or could you kind of share for the listeners what triggers an NTSB investigation? I can speak to the ones, um, you know, how it was done about two years ago. I've, I, I transferred over to the private sector about two years ago. Um, but at, at the time that I was there, it really, it could be a variety of things. Um, a lot of times it was a call from the state police. Um, but then as media and social media and just the overall connectivity of all of us throughout the country grew, it was the news. I mean, we could see on national news when there is a highway crash that was so significant um, number of fatalities involving a school bus or a motor coach or Greyhound, something like that with a lot of people that's catching up onto national, not just local news, but national news. Those were things that the NTSB would pay close attention to. But it wasn't just news. Sometimes it was the uniqueness of a crash. Like, could we go in and look at that case and find something different and make a different recommendation that we haven't looked into before? Um of course, things like school buses. And then later on, as um, towards the end of my career there, autonomous types situations where you would have a, a level two type automated vehicle that was involved in a crash. So there was a handful of those. Or uh, automated vehicle testing, uh, such as the Uber um, crash that happened out in Arizona in 2018. So there were all types of things that kind of play into that equation, but there's only a few a year. Um, there, at the time I was there, there were three fully staffed GO teams in the highway division. Um, and each one of those teams could handle maybe three or four major launches a year. So there's, so you can really only pick, you know, maybe that's a maximum of, you know, 12 to 20 or so crash investigations per year. Um, I think it was actually a lot less than that in most years because of the time and resources it took to fully investigate all aspects. We're talking about the interviews, the, you know, the pulling data, doing teardowns. These are nearly year long or sometimes more than year long investigations. Do you have to be ordered uh, by, a, by a governor or is it just uh, the NTSB makes a decision that it, it's go like it's go time and then you go? Yep, the NTSB makes the decision. Um, there's no necessary invitation or order that needs to take place. Um, 
what what they do though is is really cooperate with the local uh, law enforcement and um, the the team that's on the ground there. Yeah. So legally, the NTSB once they come on scene um, has the authority to to be there and, and do their work. Um, but of course, it's always a very important collaboration um, and. Um, agreeable working arrangement with the state police or the local police as well. It's very critical to the success of the investigation. We, we like success. And you spent 19 years in government at NHTSA and NTSB, and then you transitioned to the private sector. And when, as I mentioned, Dr. Rosekind earlier, we talked about his transition from uh, NHTSA uh, to Zooks in the private sector. I would love to gather your opinion, and, and you know Dr. Rosekind as well. What what was it like transitioning from government in, into the private sector? Terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I don't know what I was so afraid of. Honestly, it's been it's been a really great experience for me. I had no idea what all went into, you know, the the building design and setup of, of even one vehicle. Of course, I, I when I was with the NTSB, I worked on trucks and buses and cars. And I really didn't know where I'd end up. Would, would I be in the trucking industry or, you know, would I go work? And I really loved uh, motor coaches and passenger carrier. I still think that uh, area is fascinating. Um, I got to do a little bit of it when I was uh, that the, that week or two when I was looking into that company for the school. Felt really good. Um, but I ended up you in might have a little side gig there. Yeah, maybe <laughs> I could be the transportation director at my at my son's school. Um but I ended up in automotive, which is, I think, a really great place to learn um, about all of the regulations that, and I mean, it's a huge book. The Federal Motor Vehicle Safety uh, Standards is a huge set of regs, um, everything from dials and switches to more complex things like airbags, um, complex things like airbags, uh, trying to fire um on t- the, the timing of that, the recording of data, breaks everything that a vehicle, nearly everything that's in a vehicle is regulated. So what a great opportunity for me to mid-career, which was why it was so terrifying, I think. I'd spent you know, a, a really good chunk of time in government to hop over and do private sector. I'm very grateful that I did. It's certainly not easy. Um, I think that it's neat to see how, you know, some people might think that automakers are, you know, the bad guys or whatever, that, you know, we're trying to get around the regulations. And that could not be further from the truth. So much goes into making sure that vehicles comply with all of the regulations, because if there's any issue that we're found out of compliance with, that could mean a huge recall. And your name, you know, the the name of your company that you that you work so hard for being villainized in the in the press. And we've seen some of those stories. And they're, you know, they're certainly not proud moments for anyone. So that's really, you know, what I'm learning and what I'm trying to make sure I do a good job in supporting Mazda, um, which has been a really uh, kind of cool opportunity for me. I, I have to tell a little bit of a story on... Um, when I was learning the different regulations, there's a, a regulation within FMVSS 208, which is uh, compliance um, for crashworthiness. And part of the regulation is a test where you tape, literally tape, a six-year-old dummy to the passenger side 
dash of your vehicle and deploy the airbag to make sure that that dummy is not injured. You also do it with a three-year-old. And then you do it in the driver's seat with a uh, small-statured female pressed up against the tape with their, their head taped to the steering wheel. These are called low-risk deployment um, tests. And they're done because in the early 1990s, there were airbags that would fire and they were too powerful and they injured people. So now as part of when you build a vehicle, you have to run these tests to make sure that you don't injure a six-year-old, a three-year-old, or a small-statured female that are essentially taped to your dash. And I'm like, wow, that is, that's aggressive. But I understand the reason that those, um, that those regulations came into place. Of course, now there's a different stages and timing and and low pressure deployments that can be done to make sure that those types of occupants aren't injured. But it's interesting to me because it's not legal <laughs> to ride um, in those to have a child in the front seat uh, unrestrained or certainly taped to the dash. So, but we understand the reason that those that those rules are are in place and. It's a big learning opportunity for me to think, wow, the automakers really have to go to very great lengths to make sure that there's strict crashworthiness and safety in their vehicles, even in conditions that are somewhat, when you see them in testing, absurd. <laughs> so it was a very interesting experience to see that done for the first time. I'm just, I'm, I'm floored. Right, I'm completely floored, and you said not legal. We've all seen children that shouldn't be in the front seat in the in the front seat. So I'm sure that the the automakers have a database of of crashes or incidents that they can try and help mitigate if if somebody did the did the wrong thing or took a risk or didn't think or was was having a bad day. Beyond compliance, we have to design vehicles for even. Uh, safety for even out of position or out of compliance people, we're still thinking about how to protect them. Did your engineering background play a role in this? Because you always said you wanted to learn, and all the engineers that I know are are some of the most curious, interesting individuals in the world. Did your engineering background play a big part in that general learning and curiosity of going into automotive from government? It did. You know, I think I've known since I was in middle school that I was going to be in some form of transportation. Um, it's funny. I was telling a story recently, uh, talking uh, over a Zoom with some friends about driver education. And I remember driver education in high school, learning about that and learning how to drive. I grew up in, in rural Iowa, learning how to drive for the first time. Driver education was part of my high school. You actually, we had a vehicle and you had to drive it around. It was a, it was just part of school. Um, and that was so impactful to me. I like I said earlier, I learned through doing. So I really loved that class. And I really liked the videos that they showed us too. Like, you know, if you don't drive well, this is what will happen to you. And they showed us all kinds of, you know, back then um, in the, this was the the ni- early 90s. Um, yeah, they, there was, a, it was a little less uh, soft <laughs> back then. And um, yeah, that, that was really impactful on me. I'm like, oh, this is what I want to do. Like, I want to, I want to prevent this from happening. And also kind of uh, with the old saying, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. I lived kind of, like I said, in rural Iowa. And in order for 
me to get from, you know, where I needed to go. I really needed to learn how to drive a car, which I could start doing at the time when I was 14. So, you know, we had some old kind of junky cars um, that were available to me and making sure that they were up and running. And um, for me, it meant freedom. So being able to drive a car and um, really learn a little bit about transportation, it definitely sparked an interest in me. And I kind of knew that I was going to that I wanted to do something more hands on because that's just how I related to the world um, from a very young age. You had that spark and we've had lots of conversations on the podcast uh, uh, about children having that spark of being exposed to something that just completely lights something in their mind that I, this child wants to build rockets to to go into space or this child wants to build a self-driving truck or, or a tractor. How do we encourage engineering in schools and give children those hands-on experiences so when they have that aha moment, they're like, aha, I'm going to build this because it's going to do, 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 do. And then when the child goes down, that there's, there's, there's no deterring them, no matter how many obstacles they run into, that child can go on to change the world. What do you think that we can do to per- help a child find those moments by, by hands-on and, and, as you said, learn by doing? You know, to me, it's just, you know, it's it, life. It's everywhere. So whether it's, you know, you're at home and you're you're fixing a, a, a door hinge or, um, you know, opening the hood to your car, um, I think it's just making sure that we're including our children in our life and all of the things around us. You know, I think there's a lot of people that are very quick uh, to, you know, hire a handyman or or just take their car to the shop. And, and I understand that's the easy thing to do these days. But if we don't expose children and our next generation to all the possibilities around us, then how are they going to know it exists? Um, and to me, that's even like, you know, with like vocational school. Um, I, I had a wonderful experience in vocational school. I, I, of course, went through a traditional engineering program, got a bachelor's in engineering. And afterwards, I went to a vocational school, Montgomery College, which is just outside of Washington, D.C. in Maryland. And I got um, an associate's degree in applied automotive science. It was such a cool experience. I got to rebuild transmissions and, and do all of that. But those are skills. Those are the skills that the guy at the auto repair shop has to have. And it's skills that the the young people in our lives, these next generations, that we're going to need them to to have too. And I think there's a lot out there like, on you know, the audio recording, video recording, things we're doing now, YouTube, content creation, computer coding. Those are all things that the kids see and they have to be able to see that they could do that too, whether it's, and even if it's just like, you know, patching a wall at home one weekend. Okay, well, maybe I could do that. Maybe I could be in construction or I can understand how a home is built or a car is built or it really does, I think, come down to just exposing the next generation to to the world around them. You're right about that because the children are our future, and you know we do some handy projects with the paint. And my daughter wants to learn. Okay, well, how does this work, and how do you clean? It's that it's that hands-on experience which is really powerful. And you've had the incredible hands-on experience that you've seen. Um, you know, through your experience with NTSB, and and now you've had the hands-on experience from from engineering uh, in the private sector. So as we look to wrap up this conversation, I would like to ask you, based on your extreme wealth of knowledge, your your intellect and understanding of the safety topic better than uh, most individuals, what would you like our listeners to take away with them ab- about this con- conversation? 
Well, um, so let me let me leave you with this one, too, because I, I think that, um, you know, when I tell people that I, you know, I work in automotive safety and I work for Mazda and I'm an engineer, um, maybe they think I sit behind uh, like a lab and I actually like build sensors and components or something like that for a living. That That's not always true. Of course, I interact with those things at times. We do vehicle testing, but communication is still number one. Being able to talk with other people and build connections, whether you're an engineer or a lawyer or a doctor, that communication is still key. Um, in today's day, uh, at this stage in my career, I mostly engineer emails. So that is where it, you know that that's what is my day to day and i think that's for that's true for all of us in whatever profession you're in you have to be able to communicate with other people get your point across and also be a really good listener so that's more important than the technical background i think the technical background is really key and certainly for our sae community we all have that that's why we're here um but that next level for us is is really being able to to connect with one another and communicate to the best of our abilities. You're you're 100% right about communication. It's one of the most important skills in life that hopefully we can teach our children earlier. And you and I'm going to go back to what I loved about the school bus and you communicated to that school and you possibly potentially saved a lot of lives and a, and a lot of heartache because you you took a leadership mantle and you communicated about why. And so as a parent, I thank you for taking that leadership and I hope that more parents will follow your lead in being a complete awesome super mom. And so as we've heard throughout this entire conversation, engineers are cool. And so Jennifer, thank you so much for sharing your incredible insight with us during this conversation. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to SAE's Tomorrow Today podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate it, share your feedback. We love comments and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information on SAE and SAE podcasts, be sure to visit sae.org forward slash podcast and follow SAE on social media at SAEINTL on Twitter and Instagram and at SAE International on Facebook and LinkedIn. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.